Welcome to episode 290 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Can you believe that another milestone is soon approaching? I mean, 10 weeks is quite a length of time, but it's coming up on us fast. I know. I know. It's it's crazy. You know, it's funny is every once in a while we cross uh, one of these milestones, and I think more about the episode number not fitting the normal cadence of how we say the intro than I do about how many episodes (laughs) we've actually done. So it's like you go to not to not 90 to nine that like it doesn't fit into our normal cadence. But yeah, I mean, yeah. we got the regular principle of podcasting going, so don't expect anything big for episode 300, <laughs> but yeah, we've uh, we've surpassed uh, most reform podcasts at this point, I think. So we're, we're trying. We're just going to keep going. Can't yeah. stop, won't stop. And speaking of which, we're continuing this kind of grand journey through theology, and we're going to be talking a little bit about covenant of works on this episode. So get yourself ready for that. But of course, as you said, let's not get the expectations too high. And to keep those expectations in their proper place, let's do a little affirming and a little denying. What are you denying on this episode? So everybody who listened to last week's episode is not going to be surprised because I have this mild obsession now with the fact that you can get a Logos 9 Fundamentals base package for $50. (laughs) So I'm denying not getting a Logos 9 Fundamentals base package. So full disclosure, full transparency. If I was doing a presentation at the hospital, I'd have to say some. I'd have to disclose my financial financial obligation commitment, whatever. I would think you probably would too if you were doing a big presentation. You have to disclose your sponsorship or whatever. Anyway, totally off topic. Um, <laughs> you, as dear listener, if you do not own any sort of uh, Logos base package, so if you have a Logos software and you've just been adding stuff to it as you go and utilizing the free resources. Good on you, but you can purchase uh, a copy of the Logos 9 Fundamentals Base Package, which has a ton of resources. We went through it last week. We won't do it all again this week. Uh, But you can get it for $50, which is a steal. And it's a really good way to uh, expand your uh, theological library. It's a good way to get started on using Logos. Um, One of the things that most people don't realize when you have a free package is that the base packages not only come with additional books, but they come with additional features. So there are there are actual tools that are built into the Logos software that you do not have access to unless you own one of the the base packages. So you can go to reformbrotherhood.com slash Logos, L-O-G-O-S, May 22, or 2022, all one word, Logos, May 2022. Uh, and that'll take you straight to the Logos landing page for this promotion. Uh, or if you want to go hog wild, like you just... I don't know, came into a bunch of money and you want to buy like a really nice base package with lots and lots of stuff, you can just go to reformbrotherhood.com slash Logos and you can get a discount on any base package and some free books. Um, And again, full disclosure, we do get a little bit of a residual kickback on that, uh, but this is still a great deal. So so check it out. I mean, I, I, we did a whole like promotional series on Logos and we went through a lot of the different features and I just can't. I can't speak highly enough of Logos. It just really is a tool that I think people who don't use it don't realize what they're missing. So even if all you do is download the free version and check out some of the tools and some of the search abilities, uh, it really is a pretty phenomenal tool that that I think we should really be thankful for. 
This is my favorite kind of denial. It's a denial masquerading as an affirmation. Oh, yeah. And yeah, it, this is real tight. I think we've been outspoken. Here's the thing everybody should know is that we, though we get something just by affiliate, by you going out, we're kind of saying, listen, it's worth getting anyway. Right. And if you decide that you do think it's something that you want to purchase, we would appreciate it if you go through those links because it does help us again by supporting the podcast. But we've also been super outspoken. It's an amazing tool. It's a tool for everybody, honestly. And the $50, I think, hopefully makes it more within reach. Right. For those who might have thought in the past, like that's just too something that's like a bridge too far to cross financially. So, of course, we want you always to spend your money wisely and to do so with great prudence and responsibility. And this is a kind of tool that you can use no matter who you are in the church. It's going to enhance your Bible study, your appreciation for the word of God, your ability to search, your ability to get access to really, really good reading and to be able to do that across a bunch of platforms. They really figured it out. So listen, check it out. At least you won't be, I would say disappointed. Yeah. And even if you do have a different base package, you can still go to that affiliate link that we shared and check out what the cost of this would be because when you when you have books in your library that you already own uh, it'll actually subtract the cost of those books out of the package. So you may right. find out right now they have a promotion. It's $99 for the package, even if you have another base package. You may find out that you go there and actually the books that you get are discounted so deeply that it'd be cheaper than buying the books separately um, to get this package. So even if you're already a Lagos user and you already have a base package, um, if you're still looking to expand your library, which who isn't looking to expand their library, let's be honest, Amen. Um, you can go and check this out and you still might find out that it's a pretty sweet deal with a pretty deep discount. I love it. Get some. That's what about what you? What are, about. what are you denying this week, Jesse? Okay. So here's what I'm denying against. This is of somewhat of a lighthearted nature. It's a little bit tongue in cheek. It's one of those things that somebody would say to you. You'd be like, I'm pretty sure you're kind of joking, but there's like 20% subtle subtext there that you mean wholeheartedly. And that's kind <laughs> of where this denial falls. So let me ask you a question. So when you think of Daniel and specifically the book of Daniel and specifically the three dudes who get thrown into the, the furnace, those dudes are whom? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yeah. So this is the thing I'm kind of denying against is like, I feel like I got to defend my brothers here for no reason. Like nobody asked me to do this. And that is the names that we find that they're given by the chief eunuch. But I've often been thinking recently, like cut to them being like, yo, we had other names yeah, before the chief of eunuchs yeah. gave these names. Just call us Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So I'm yeah. denying against that. Like whenever we tell that story, we just go to those names, which I get. That's the name in the text. It's not wrong. But I'm thinking like if it's me and I get assimilated into another culture, like I go into captivity, I'd want people like even in posterity to like call me Jesse. Does yeah. that make sense? Like that's the yeah. name. That, but I mean, of course, God still gave them, so to speak, these names by way of like the culture that they were embedded and impounded in, which he sent them to and blessed them in. So I understand why the text in God's great sovereignty and by inspiration of the Holy Spirit is giving us those names. I'm just kind of like, I read that and I think I feel bad for them. I, I just want to call them like Hananiah, Mishael, and Ezra. So I try to do that whenever I, I'm conversing with this. And you can see the look on people's faces like, why would you call them that? Be like, because that is their names. <laughs> that is who they are. Yeah. I mean, I need to look up what their names actually mean because I'm sure there's meaning to the, to the, um, Aramaic names that they're given. And that's probably, Ooh, that's good. Hey, how would you do that? You is there do like that a method if you wanted to <laughs> probably. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. I'll have to look it up. Now, I'm not going to do it right now because that's bad podcasting, but yeah, that's, that's fair. Yeah, so that's I mean, I think like that's legit. I think, I think, 
uh, we don't realize and we don't recognize. I think one thing that happens when we read the Old Testament narratives that uh, we miss that actually the Bible doesn't make a lot of it, but I think it's sort of in the subtext of most of the exile, the post-exilic prophets and the exile texts, how traumatic the exile actually must have been. I mean, exile from your homeland is always traumatic, but now you add to it that your understanding of the promises of God, which we may, we may talk about. Oh yeah. We may talk about promises of God and land promises as we get into tonight's topic a little bit, or maybe over the next couple of weeks. But when you not only are exiled, which is traumatic enough, but then also your understanding of the faithfulness of God is tied to your nation dwelling in the land that you were in. Now you've been removed from that land. Not only is it the trauma of exile, but now it's the trauma of also feeling like, did did God forget his promises? Did God renege on his promises? Mm. So I think to remember that, uh, that element of the trauma of what the people of Israel went through, it actually helps us to understand some of the severity of what's going on in the text. Um, some of the severity of some of the things the prophets say, um, you know, like, uh, one of the Psalms where it's like, if I forget Jerusalem, may my right hand lose its skill and my tongue right. stick to my mouth. Like it's these self-imposed curses. It's maledictory oaths that someone is saying, basically like, if I forget about my homeland, may all these terrible things happen to me. Well, that's also because it's an expression of the, the faithfulness of God, the promise, the faith in the promise of God to say, let me remember the land that God has promised me because I have, because, you know, kind of subtext, because I have faith that he will one day bring our people back to that land. So yeah, I think that's a good reminder and, and remembering that they had other names or, or like Daniel, he was given, see, it's kind of weird yes. because the text does almost the exact opposite. Exactly. Daniel Daniel was given another name, but we still call right. him Daniel, and the text still calls him Daniel. So it'd be interesting to sort of pull on that thread and try to figure out and try to look at, well, why is it that the uh, the text seems to retain Daniel's Hebrew name, but it doesn't seem to retain uh, the three boys or the three men's Hebrew names? Yeah, The only I've one I ever remembers Mishael. Yeah, I've thought about that a lot, actually, because if you look at the text, and this is mainly Daniel 1, when you it's disclosed that they're, what their names are and then that they're changed— they actually, in the middle of Daniel 1, so like in speaking about like the, the diet stuff, it uses the Hebrew names again. Yeah. Thereafter, it doesn't. So it again, to your point, it's, I think there's a lot of emphasizing this massive, almost indoctrination that's taking place here. And of course, their names are significant, and I'm with you. I don't remember exactly, though I know I've been taught on this before, the significance and what the names actually mean. But of course, they're all very thoughtful. They're divinely placed, uh, like all of our names in a sense. And But here, where of course, they are analogs of something greater than just their names, just convention or just, you know, what it sounds like. So we have in this, this great reminder, like you said, that are we able to trust God? Is he preserving his people? And what do their names mean in light of the fact that they are being brought into this foreign culture, being educated, and then in light of all of this quote unquote secularism that they are demonstrating the light and the love of God, his superintending will and his presence and power over all things. It's really fascinating. So I love that. I love that with names. And so I just thought, hey, these guys are probably like, uh, what the heck? Just use our real names. Actually, I misspoke. I'm looking again at Daniel 119. There again, they're Hebrew names. So I guess it may be used a little bit throughout until we get to the fiery furnace. Yeah. Well, I know I said I wasn't going to do it, but I did it anyways, because that's how easy it is that while you were talking, I looked up the names. <laughs> so Shadrach means something along the lines of... Uh, royal, or it might mean like royal scribe. 
Uh, Meshach means guest of the king. And Abednego, we always say Abednego, but it's Abednego, yeah. actually means servant servant of Nego. So these are all names that that basically place these, these boys or men, they're probably young men, place them in reference to a foreign king. Exactly. But if you look at the way that they actually respond to the king in uh, the account of the, the idol that Nebuchadnezzar sets up, um, it, it kind of is like there's like an ironic twist when he says like, well, you, O king, you know, we, we don't fear you, O king. We fear the Lord and he'll save us from your hand, O king. That ref- like that, that kind of like needling on that phrase, O king, there's this sort of, there's this sort of um, ironic tension between their names being referenced to these new kings that they're under and then their sort of like rebellion or resistance to those kings. So this is just, I mean, I, I, I didn't mean to do it this way, but like you, you, I couldn't do that if I didn't have Logos at my fingertips. <laughs> so, and this is something with the resources you get in the fundamentals kit, all of the resources that I use to do that are part of this fundamentals kit. So I know like I'm on like, like Logos nine fundamentals pledge drive mode here, but it really is a, an amazing resource that you can get for super cheap. I don't want you to miss out on it. Please don't miss out on it because it's, it's good for you to have these resources at your fingertips. It takes oh, somebody who's never so been good. able to study Greek or Hebrew, or in this case, Aramaic, and it makes it so they have access to those languages in ways that they, otherwise they probably would never have the ability to look up things this way. And not that you have to have this access to understand the scripture, but you really can understand the scripture a lot better if you have a little bit of access into the Greek and Hebrew, uh, which you probably wouldn't have otherwise. So good. All right. So now I'm in too deep. Now I also went to Logos so I could search out the names. And here's, again, the value. I actually found that the names also appear in Daniel 2.17. So actually, they're repeated, the Hebrew names, far more often than they actually thought. So <laughs> See? I would say... I think we're getting to the point where almost we have equality or parity between mentions of the Hebrew names and the Babylonian equivalents. So there you go. Every day is a school day. The more you know. The more you know. All right. So let's talk a little bit about affirming things, like actual affirmations of things. What are you affirming with? Uh, so I'm affirming this is an old affirmation. I've now, this is my second, my second, second coconut oil affirmation. Um, but I'm, I actually, it's like triple coconut oil. Uh, I'm still getting into this obsidian, uh, Zettelkasten, uh, craze again. And I've been watching YouTube videos, setting up my Zettelkasten. And it, it really is even thinking about how to set up this note taking platform and utilize it is actually, um, helping me to think about taking notes better. So part of the benefit of this Zettelkasten, note-taking methodology is that you are capturing your thoughts, you're capturing your ideas, and then you're making connections to them. And as you do that, then like the structure of your thought actually emerges organically. But on top of that, because you're having to sort of consciously think about how you're taking notes, you're actually processing the information in a more in-depth way, even just as you read it. So I'm finding that as I read something, even if I'm not taking notes actively, I'm thinking about it more in terms of the way I take notes than I am uh, than I used to be. And that helps me process the information more. So you can check it out. Um, there's a book called How to Take Smart Notes that was very helpful in understanding the Zettelkasten method. And if you go to YouTube and look for like 
Zettelkasten uh, Obsidian YouTube channels, you'll find like a thousand people who've made videos about how to set up your particular note-taking setup. Um, but I would encourage people just to check it out because it's it's pretty cool. It might, it might help you. Uh, it might not. It might be a rabbit hole you don't want to go down. But I'm really having a lot of fun kind of checking this stuff out and really, really thinking through these things. Yeah, that's actually a really great segue into my affirmations. We didn't plan this at all, but now I'm back on this kick of trying to understand how best to think about thinking. So I'm into this like metacognition thing and just trying to understand what are the proper ways that God has created us to study and to retain information, which of course is very much related to how we use note-taking and all of that good stuff. So I'm going to affirm with a book, which I think is not necessarily groundbreaking, but might be super helpful for brothers and sisters who have never thought about metacognition before. And this book is called Learn Like a Pro, Science-Based Tools to Become Better at Anything. And it's by Barbara Oakley and her co-author, author, Olive, man, I can't pronounce his last name, Shrew? Not Shrewt, like Dwight, but Shrew. And this is just a book about how to learn. It's got like a lot of digestible bite-sized chapters. It's a little bit like life hacking your learning. And I think, again, you might find a lot of this stuff is either obvious or straightforward, but put together, I think there's a lot of great like practical tips. I think sometimes you can read a book about learning and it's so high up in its philosophy that it doesn't provide you enough pragmatic application. This is not that book. It's a really helpful book that gives you a lot of things to try. So if you're trying to learn anything, which is basically everybody, right? Even if you want to understand the Bible better as you're reading, like how do I make sure that my comprehension is good? What there's a whole chapter on, is it possible to speed read? What is speed reading? What does that do? How does that fit in with somebody who wants to be an inveterate learner and retain and comprehend what they're learning before them? How can I do that better? All of this is in this book. It's at least enough to get you started. And there's more resources that are mentioned in this book, including like apps and various books, articles to even go further and deeper if you want to in, if, into a particular like topic or subject. So Learn Like a Pro by Barbara Oakley is on my affirmation list on this episode. Nice. Well, I'm not sure where we go from there other than hop into our topic. So, Jesse, you are on point this week. You had some interesting thoughts on how to take this a little bit of a different direction. So most people know that we recently covered the Covenant of Works, which is our topic for tonight. We recently covered it in another episode. So we wanted to approach it from a slightly different uh, angle. If you want to listen to that episode, it's episode number 237. You can find it on the website if you go to reformbrotherhood.com slash covenant dash of dash works. Um, or you can just search for Covenant of Works in the search field. It should be the only episode. But we wanted to approach it from a slightly different angle. Um, so Jesse, why don't you take us in? So we've already done an episode, like you said. We've spoken actually at length about the Covenant of Works. And so I figured this time, let's take it from a slightly different angle, not just bringing forward kind of the essential elements, which are all important, and you can find that in the episode you just referenced there, but maybe something about its context and the importance of the covenant of works in how we understand like theology in the conversations we're having and also kind of other, or what we might call errants or other different kind of perspectives. So let me start this way. Here's like a little bit of prolegomena to get us to the point where I want to set the table for this particular meal. So first, I think you and I both say that like covenant theology really finds it's more refined and systematic formulation in the Protestant Reformation. But I think it's importance 
this idea of covenant theology has really been heightened in our day because of its relationship to a theology that is relatively new, like new by standards of theology. So like in the late 19th century, we referenced before, there was this theology that came forward called dispensationalism. And it really emerged as kind of a new approach to understanding the Bible. And so brothers and sisters may be familiar with something like the old school field reference Bible, which defined dispensationalism in terms of, I think, seven distinct dispensations or time periods within sacred scripture. And each dispensation was essentially defined as this period of time during which man is tested in respect to obedience to some specific revelation of the will of God. And then usually there is disobedience to that. And of course, then a new epoch or a new dispensation is ushered in. And Schofield was the one that kind of, I guess, popularized this to, to at least a large degree, at least codified it in terms of the scripture that he put forward in his own uh, version or his own like reference Bible. And that's kind of over against what we've talked about before, this diversified view of redemptive history, covenant theology, which seeks to present a clear picture of the unity of redemption, which the unity is seen in continuity of all of the covenants that God has given throughout history and how they're fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. So when we think about the covenant of works, here we have it in some ways in contradistinction to this other viewpoint. So what gives then? Like, what is its role? What is its importance? And why would somebody else kind of essentially say, well, that's not important influence or emphasis. So there is that, but I want to give like one other example, and that is beyond just the difference between like traditional dispensationalists and reformed theology with respect to the basic structure of biblical revelation, there is, I would say like an even greater crisis with respect to understanding redemption and the covenant of works. And that is a crisis focusing on the place of imputation in our understanding of the doctrine of justification. So just as like the doctrine of imputation was the pivotal issue in the 16th century debate between like the reformers and the Roman Catholic understanding of justification, I think now the issue of imputation is again prevalent among professional evangelicals who would repudiate the Reformation, the Reformation's understanding of like this imputation, which we see in the covenant of works, so to speak. So at the heart of this question of justification, imputation is the rejection of what is called the covenant of works, which we'll get into in a second, of course. And historic covenantal theology makes an important distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. The covenant of works referring, of course, to this covenant that God made with Adam and Eve in their pristine purity before the fall, and in which God promised them blessedness contingent upon their obedience to his command. So that's all the prolegomena, because I want to talk about it almost from like this, it's, it's the same thing, but from a slightly different viewpoint, we're saying this is over and against kind of a dispensationalist worldview, and it's over and against, or it's helping us understand rather maybe what it means to have the imputation of justification and righteousness. So all that to say, the covenant of works is not just like a way, a rubric to like see the scriptures and understand what God does. It actually matters for how we live our lives and how we work out that living. Because most people would agree that dispensationalists are very different from like the reformed tradition, both in terms of how they understand the Bible and then how they live it out. But then in addition to that, again, this idea of, well, let's talk about justification. And I would guess, I would wager that many brothers and sisters would say, well, when I think of justification, I think of the covenant of works. Yeah. And yet these things are like intimately entwined. So how about we talk about it from that perspective? How do you feel about that? Yeah. You know, I think, I think that's a great angle for us to take. And I think there is a great neglect of understanding the covenant of works in modern theology. And, you know, I think back to my pre-reformed days, or I shouldn't say pre-reformed days, but my, my days when I was 
in the Lutheran church, but it was sort of this oddball Calvinist reform person didn't, didn't quite know it yet. Um, I remember reading, I've, I've mentioned this before. I remember reading the book of Hebrews and just being totally confused and not understanding what all of this inheritance language was about. I didn't mm. understand what it meant that we were inheriting, inheriting, we were co-heirs with Christ, that we were inheritors of a kingdom, all of this language that's so, so, it's so common throughout the whole New Testament. I mean, Paul uses this language. Um, some of the language, if you understand the, the Greek underneath it or the Hebrew that's laying underneath some of the New Testament statements, um, it's everywhere, this covenant language. And a lot of the New Testament just doesn't seem to make sense. And then I remember when I started understanding these these covenant frameworks, it was like all of a sudden the, the scripture opened up to me. I'd be really interested, and maybe we should we should do this sometime. I'd be really interested to to talk to Chad Bird about covenant language and for how, sure. how from a Lutheran perspective yes. they understand this. Cause I, I don't fully understand the Lutheran like appropriation of covenant language. Although I know that, I mean, obviously like they're reading the Bible. It's not like they're just ignoring huge swaths of the Bible. So they're reading the Bible they're understanding it. But I think in modern theology, there is this neglect of the covenant of works, just covenant categories in general that ends up leading these theological positions to some weird spots, right? The, the, the predominant evangelical view is fundamentally a Pelagian or semi-Pelagian perspective in that it understands or it overestimates man's ability to actually obey God. But at the same time, it because of this neglect of the covenant work, they don't even really understand exactly what it even means to obey God. They don't have exactly. a framework. They don't have a they don't have a rubric for it. And so I think this is a good t- a good way for us to approach this topic. And again, if you're just dropping in on the podcast and you're thinking, "Oh man, we were going through all of these fundamentals and it was all like first level introductory stuff," and now all of a sudden we're on the second level second stage of the discussion, it's because we had a big a whole episode on Covenant of Works, I don't know, like 100 episodes ago. But check it out, uh, look it up, and listen to it, because we we went into some depth on some of the basics that I don't think we're going to get to on today's episode. Yeah, I mean, of course, we can say, as we think we maybe did in that episode, that these terms like Covenant of Works, Covenant of Grace, they're not found in Scripture. They are, however, accurate depictions of the character and the content of God's revelation. And of course, because of that, they are therefore a proper way of categorizing the scriptures. So just to set that up, if you're going to do a quick search in Logos, which you may be inclined to do, you're not going to find this exact terms there. But I'm with you. Like, So what I'm discovering is that this is like a critically important thing to understand and acknowledge. Almost you have to acknowledge it because your theology is impounding or embedding or kind of like taking in, ingesting this idea or the lack of this idea, either repeating it or you're embracing it. And that's what I find is the more I go back to these kind of different philosophies or understand again, how justification plays into our understanding of the covenant language or what it means to, as you said, embrace or receive the inheritance of God. Right. You actually can't get to that point unless you come through this doorway. You have to come through this door or you yeah. have to say, I'm not going through that door. Right. So like, let's talk about what that means then. Like, so when you say that, like it's been neglected, what are the outworkings of that neglect? Or maybe a better way to say this would be like, what do you see as like the symptoms of that neglect? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, the most prominent one is just the sort of theological downgrade of the Lord's day itself. Right. Because we, we look at the covenant of works and most most evangelicals are coming from a sort of um, 
what's called New Covenant Theology Perspective. And so the idea is that there's there was the Old Covenant, and the Old Covenant in its entirety passed away and was replaced entirely by this New Covenant. And so any anything that is not expressly repeated or reaffirmed in the New Testament is somehow no longer in force. And so mm-hmm. the, the the one that falls to the wayside, even though I actually think it was expressly repeated, and I, we can make that argument on a different episode, is the the fourth commandment, right? And so there's this subtle degradation of the prominence of the Lord's Day and the events of the Lord's Day and the centrality of the Lord's Day and the life of God's people that I think is a direct result of underestimating the ongoing uh, reality and the ongoing presence of God's law in the life of a believer. So there's this subtle, subtle antinomianism that happens with New Covenant theology, where um, on one level you both uh, you both degrade the law by kind of acting as though it's no longer in force, but then also you sort of bind yourself to a new law that isn't even expressly in the scriptures. Um, I, I guess I wasn't going to go there, but I will go there. there this is just. I've been reading John Piper's new book, What is Saving Faith? And he his his basic argument, and if you don't believe me, go ahead and check it out yourself. You can actually get it free from um, desiringgod.org. You can get a free PDF of it. He's expressly arguing that um, affections, emotionality, the experience of salvation, the outworkings of our salvation are actually constitutive of faith. And so he's wanting to say, like, not only do you need to trust God, but you need to uh, you need to experience the affection towards God that that properly comes out of sanctification. And so there's this misunderstanding in a lot of evangelical theology of the role of the law in the life of the believer. So for John Piper in this book, the law teaches us what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and all your mind, right? So for, for the Christian, this law is, is not for salvation, it's for uh, or it's not for justification, it's for sanctification. But because there's this misunderstanding of the covenant of works, now that gets smuggled back into justification in weird ways that we don't expect. Yes. So I think there the the loss of a focus and a of an understanding of these covenantal categories and specifically this covenantal category of the law of God as a meritorious um, covenant that prior to the fall of man could have merited uh, eternal reward from God according to the terms of that covenant, right? And maybe maybe we should take a second to define this in case people don't want to go back and listen to the, the previous episode. So the covenant of works is that agreement which was made between Adam and God in the garden prior to the fall. And according to that agreement, if Adam fulfilled certain stipulations, then he would be rewarded with a conveyance of permanent, immutable, eternal life. And so after the fall, we'll talk about the covenant of grace, but after the fall, that reward is no longer accessible to anyone in Adam's line. Right. And so that doesn't mean the law doesn't have a place for the life of the Christian, though. And I think that's where a lot of these modern evangelical, new new evangelical um, thinkers lose it, is they lose the idea that the moral law of God, which is expressed in the Old Testament scriptures— in various places, in various ways, they lose that that has any sort of binding validity and that degrades the law such that you have to do something with it, right? We have this moral law written on our hearts. And so you have to do something with it. And if you don't have this covenant framework, you don't know what to do with it. So it gets, ends up, a lot of times it ends up getting smuggled back into your justification, right? John Paper does this in this newest book. In a lot of ways, the Lordship Salvation Controversy does this. 
they smuggle in certain kinds of things about obedience and fidelity and loyalty that gets smuggled back into the covenant of works or into into justification via this misunderstanding of the covenant of works. So it, it ends up with this weird antinomian trajectory. And as as Sinclair Ferguson taught us in the whole Christ, antinomianism and uh, legalism are actually like kissing cousins of the same thing. They're they're the right. same error, just played out on different sides of the the spectrum of error. What say you? Yeah, sorry. I thought there was going to be more there. That was you were just crushing it right there. Sorry. No, that was beautiful. I I totally agree. There's like a great irony, isn't there? In that, like when and when we say antinomianism, we're saying is like anti in the literal sense, like against the law. Right. And yet, to be against the law and to push back in one way is, of course, to create a law of your own, and then to elevate that. So that's to me like this great irony. It's interesting that you bring up the Lord's Day in particular because. I've also been considering that recently, and I do think there is a strangeness there with some evangelicalism where they'll say, it's as if they want to emphasize the Sabbath, but they don't want to go too far in their emphasis because they don't know where the line is. So they'll say things like, of course, we want to come and worship on the Lord's Day, but what it means to worship, what it means to actually set that day aside usually gets constrained or limited to whatever just happens in the service, that that is the specialness of the day. As long as you're present and doing something of some magnitude, of some degree, of some caliber, of some quality and character, that's all that really is required. So it's almost like going to Romans 14 and saying, well, I mean, Paul said, you know, some honor a special day and some say any day, all days are special unto the Lord. And that's kind of, again, in my opinion, like an adventure missing the point because like you said, I think one of the really regrettable implications, which is sometimes drawn from this term of the covenant of works, is that this arrangement was so designed to let Adam earn eternal life or designed so that God would have somehow been obligated to give Adam something that he would not have otherwise given. And that's where it gets weird because you can see, like you're saying, like this moral complexity and compulsion to say, well, I know that my salvation is not meritorious, but the things that like when I read my Bible regularly, when I have a deep prayer closet, when I go to church, then I'm somehow more presentable before God, or he's somehow more pleased with me. What was offered to Adam in the covenant of works was the result already of God's favor toward him. God graciously offered life and blessedness to Adam. And we have to remember that the condescension of the creator is the basis for all of God's contact with man. The condition of this offer was Adam's continuance in the creator-creature relationship. So even Adam's relationship before he sinned was based on God's willingness to allow their association. Contact between the creator and the creature, regardless of what occurs, that's always a matter of grace. So we don't want to think that a grace was absent, of course, during that covenant of works. What we are focusing on is the obligation which was placed on Adam during that pre-fall period, just as the emphasis after the fall is not upon man, but upon man's substitute, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Until you kind of get that right, wrap your arms and your mind around that, you are going to be prone to weird errors. What cracks me up, and, and I think you can either laugh or cry about this, is that it just gets super weird in yeah. ways that are kind of laughable, right? Which is what you're saying. Like you're against the law, but you can't be against the law because you'll just replace, like, I don't know, like the law abhors a void. And so yeah. therefore new law sneaks in and it's going to be like the law that you promulgated yourself. So you find yourself in your conscience bound to something 
And what we're saying here is like, let's respect the covenant of works for what it is, that it has a place in understanding what it means to be justified. It is like the table setting about upon which Christ sits and eats the last supper, so to speak, with his disciples. This, All of this is happening uh, by God's design. So like, it's better to embrace it than to try to fight against it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it strikes me too, is that if we lose this category of the covenant of works, we sort of lose the grounding for how it is we understand God being pleased with man, right? So what I mean by that is that God, God, and this is basically straight out of uh, chapter seven of the Westminster um, Confession. So verse one, it says, the distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. So right so that is specifically talking about the fact that man could not have any enjoyment of God apart from the covenant. But there's a sort of an embedded corollary that God can't have any enjoyment of man apart from covenant, right? So right there's on. this reciprocal nature. And so God God doesn't need anything from us, right? He he doesn't he doesn't get enjoyment in a strict sense from us. He doesn't get glory from us. He doesn't grow or increase in his his power or his potency or his renown from us. So he condescends to us, but in that condescension, paradoxically, we know how it is that God can actually be pleased by us. And I mean that in the analogical sense, right? Like I just said, God is not actually pleased by us. Nothing is changed in God by us. But he comes to us and he communicates to us by way of this covenant, this is what you can do that will please me. And whatever whatever that means, whatever the language of being pleasing to God means, this is these are the terms by which you can do that. Adam, you want to have eternal fruition and blessedness, union with me, fellowship with me. These are the terms of of the covenant by which you can obtain that. The problem is if we lose this covenant of works idea, if we lose this concept, all of the sudden we have to figure out how it is that we can have fruition in God, how we can have fellowship and enjoyment with God. And that's where this weird replacing the law perspective comes in. Right. And that's why you get in evangelicalism that has lost this. You get these weird additional ceremonies and and other things that kind of accrue to evangelicalism. Scott Clark and actually Mike Horton talks about this a lot too in various places that that quiet time and uh, emotional worship services have replaced the sacraments of baptism. Like the altar call is the new baptism and quiet time is the new uh, Lord's Supper. And it's because we understand that there's a certain uh, ritualism to Christianity, right? There's we please God with certain acts, certain things we do. Well, that's 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 fundamental to the understanding of the covenant of works. God says, "Do this, and you shall live," which is another way to say, "Do this, and I shall be pleased with you, and will bless you." Well, we we know we we instinctively know that that's a fat part of the fabric of reality, the part of the fabric of how humans interact with God. But if we don't actually have an understanding of the covenant of works in the garden, and then how that plays out and is reflected, the moral law that kind of sits under the covenant of works, how that plays out in in the uh, in the law, and how that then extends into the life of the Christian, we always replace it with something. So I think that this topic is just super important because. 
I mean, it gets to second commandment, um, regulative principle issues. How do we please God? Well, we don't please God by um, spending time during the worship service painting pretty pictures or doing dance recitals or any of the other kinds of things. I mean, not not to be crass, but like this is where like cult prostitution came from. They believed they could please the gods by committing certain sexual acts in the temple. Well, that that's a that's a result of pagans losing sight of what God actually requires of them in the covenant of works and in the moral law. So I just think that this subject, this concept, because it's been lost, it has so many downstream impacts and influences on really a lot of the things that are just messed up about evangelicalism. You want to look at something like Hillsong and go, well, what went what went wrong there? Well, part right. of the answer is they lost sight of the covenant of works. So they lost sight of the fact that God gets to determine what's pleasing to him. God right gets on. to set the boundaries on what's appropriate worship, what's appropriate behavior, what's appropriate action. It's not something that we supply either either out of our own brilliance or by somehow reading between the lines of what God has not not forbidden, right? Where, where the, the normative principle of worship is whatever God has not forbidden is permissible. Well, that's still us making things up and just saying like, well, we're not making it up absolutely because we have boundaries, but it's still not exactly the same as saying like, well, no, we've got positive commands from the Lord of do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. That's important and it's part of our religion. And I think we miss that a lot. Yeah, that's right on. I, there's so many things that this teaches us. And I think we fail to ask in part, maybe because we get wrapped up in just the theological pedagogical understanding of this idea of a covenant of works and that it's also something, it's not an artifact, but something of a time that we can't quite comprehend. And so we fail to ask the question, what does it teach us? And that's, I think really what you're driving at is in, in what we say or what we say about, you know, theology in some ways betrays how we understand the covenant of works. It certainly taught us, as you said, that like man's knowledge and communion with God is God's doing. It's just like an undeniable fact of creation. If God created us, then certainly we have to say that he's responsible for any contact and fellowship that we're going to have with him. It seems obvious, but I would say like in theology, in practical terms of the outworking of that theology, not everybody actually believes that. It's like whatever we know about God is a result of his grace. It's proper for God, the creator, to come to us then and to instruct us. And what other kind of arrangement can you imagine given the fact that our creation is at the hands of God? So it teaches us that all our knowledge, our community, all that's God's doing. And then in exactly the way that you presented it, like the covenant works teaches us that life in its fullest, its purest meaning, it depends upon our absolute unquestioning submission to God. There can simply be no other arrangement between God and man. It doesn't exist. We're, we're not God. We're never going to be God. And there's a great freedom in understanding this covenant of works so that we might worship God and live in communion with him in the way that he has set forth. It's not as if, of course, like you come to being a Christian, that God saves you into this massive downer of a life in which he takes all these fun things from you. What he's actually doing, of course, is like freeing you in the covenant of works through Jesus Christ, his son, to live that abundant life. But it starts there. It starts by way of conception in the garden so that we might be taught by it, even though we see that Adam fails in upholding it. So you can't just like get rid of it. Like it's, right. it's nonsensical in my opinion to like say, to, as you said, like to kind of just cast it out as something has been like totally overturned as like an incomplete and unuseful artifact. There is so much that it teaches us, but I just rarely hear people asking like, what am I taught by in this? Does that make sense? Yeah. And, you know, to bring it back to your point earlier about imputation is, 
imputation is in crisis, right? That that's like a, a an issue in the modern church, even in a lot of reform circles. It's um, it's in crisis, and part of the reason why it's in crisis in reform circles is because of a rejection of the covenant of works, right? So federal right, vision exactly. theology, right? Federal vision theology rejects. Um, in different ways, using different language, right? One of the hallmarks of federal vision theology is that they redefine terms in a way that makes it unclear what they're actually saying. But when you boil it down, what they're saying is that the covenant of works is actually a covenant of grace. And so they they, they might not actually affirm that there's only one covenant, but there's only one type of covenant, and it's always a gracious covenant. Well, the problem with that is that then there's nothing to impute. There's no merit right. to impute. Right, exactly. we had we actually had this conversation in the Telegram chat um, a couple weeks ago, and this was an, an active back and forth. And one of the issues is that if you lose the concept of merit in the covenant of works, then what is it that Christ is imputing to us, if not merit which He has earned according to the covenant of works? So if we lose sight of the covenant of works, or we turn it into a covenant of grace, or we turn it into not a covenant, whatever we do that makes it not a covenant of works, a covenant of merit, a covenant of of obtaining obtaining a reward by means of obedience, right? We can call it whatever we want, but that's what it is. It's a covenant where you obtain a reward by means of obedience. If we lose that, then now when we get to what happens when Jesus comes, what is he imputing to us? Is he imputing grace to us? Well, that doesn't make sense. If it's truly grace, why would it need to be imputed to us? We don't get, grace isn't imputed. It's not infused. It's not given to us. Grace is... Uh, grace is just grace. Grace is given to us, right? So if we lose merit or if we lose, I want to stay away from the term merit because merit can be a really loaded term. Yeah, but if we right. lose the idea that the covenant of works was fundamentally an arrangement where Adam obtained a reward or could have obtained a reward by means of obedience, then that same reward that Adam could have obtained it makes no sense to say Christ obtained that reward for us by means of obedience and then gave us that reward by grace, which is what we'll get into next week when we talk about the covenant of grace. But if we lose that concept, then imputation doesn't make any sense anymore. Exactly. It just doesn't work anymore. And we can talk we can talk maybe a little bit when we get there about it, but we when we mentioned like the guilt of sin being transmitted, that's a covenantal action, right? The only way that transmission of guilt from one generation to the next actually makes sense in terms of the guilt of sin is if we're all part of the same covenant. If we're all under the same covenant to start with, then the punishment or the penalty of that covenant, because we have broken that covenant, transmits down to all of those who are in that broken covenant. So while Adam was born uh, into the covenant of works, or while the covenant of works was made with Adam in a neutral state— we entered into the covenant of works in a sinful state. So we enter into the covenant already behind the eight ball because of what our father Adam did. And all of that, all of that insight, which like I said, to be honest with you, I really, I really should email Chad and figure out if we can do a time to chat about this because Let's do it. I don't fully understand how that theology works in, in Lutheran thought. I don't really fully understand how the trans and Maybe I'm just going to speculate a little bit here. I have a feeling they don't really fully understand how it works either, and they're just okay with that because that's kind of the Lutheran shtick. Um, but it'd be interesting to chat through it with his Old Testament background of saying, like, how does this even work in Lutheran theology? How is the transmission of guilt legitimized in in Lutheran theology? Um, 
if not by means of some sort of covenant of works, which I'm sure the Lutherans right. would just have a total like heart attack aneurysm about if you if you try to get them to affirm a covenant of works. Um, and that, I think that's one of the problems in evangelicalism too, is we don't right. they don't understand what is being said when we say a covenant of works, because they're immediately thinking about post-fall reality. What's required for salvation is absolutely not works. It's grace, right? It's grace. And and amen, praise the Lord. Yes, indeed, it is grace. Of but course. it has to be grace from something. Like there has to be right. something to be saved from in order for it to be gracious. If God did not need to save us from something, it wouldn't be gracious to save us. It just, it wouldn't be necessary. It just wouldn't be. So the covenant of works really grounds our salvation in that it establishes the parameters from which and by which we need to be saved from. So are you saying that the covenant of works was an actual genuine arrangement? Yes, I am. <laughs> I am saying I that. Mean, yeah, I mean that's the that's the thing that strikes me is like if you were to put like a really fine point on it, I think that's the thing that we need to challenge each other and our evangelical brothers and sisters and maybe even our resident Lutherans on this idea that it was legit, like it actually happened, it was codified. So what God promised was actually genuine. What was required of Adam was actually genuine. And of course, like we know that to be true because of what happened when Adam violated this covenant, the very threat against him for disobedience, which was part of the covenant stipulations was brought to pass. You know, he died and his communion with the creator was ruined. And like you said, all of his posterity along with him in that regard. So like the promises and the threats associated with that arrangement with God made with Adam were actually real. And it's weird to say that, but I think that's in some ways what's under threat here. All that the Bible says following man's transgression of the first covenant assumes the validity of the covenant of works. Yeah. So if you're speaking about the grace of God, as you said already really well, that can only happen because you're presuming like presuppositionally that this was a real arrangement. And if this early arrangement between the creator and Adam was not genuine, you know, that is if the stipulations really had no meaning or consequences, then the rest of the Bible loses all its credibility. I mean, that's not yeah. too extreme. That's not hyperbolic to say the reality of Adam's failure in the covenant of works is the entire basis for the redemption promised and provided by God. That's just how it is, loved ones. So like we can try to run from that, but it, what's funny is somewhere in our gospel message, even like the evangelicalese that we use, you're going to find all this language about God's grace and for God's love of the world that he gave. Well, that giving has to come out of this heart that desires to rescue in the midst of the law, in the midst of meritorious earning of salvation by the perfect representative, the Lamb of God, which takes away all the sin of the world. And that comes because of this first establishment, a covenant, which is the covenant of works. Right. Just, I, I can't see any way around it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's hard to overestimate or overemphasize how central this theology is to our salvation, right? Because as I've said in a variety of ways, if you lose the covenant of works, then the concept of justification by means of Christ's active and passive obedience is nonsense. Like it doesn't make any sense at all. And so even theologies like Lutheranism, um, which affirm a double imputation of Christ's righteousness, right? Christ's, Christ's active obedience and that he fulfilled the law on our behalf and Christ's passive righteousness and that he suffered the consequences of our sin. And, and both of those things are imputed to us. That doesn't make any sense apart from a law that establishes what 
the penalty is. Right? right. So if you if you lose the covenant of works, which the covenant of works and the moral law are not the same thing, right? Adam Adam didn't violate the moral law strictly speaking, other than the fact that he disobeyed God, which is part of the moral law. But the the eating of the forbidden fruit, as we as we said, is a positive law. It was something that got added on top of the moral law, and the moral law, properly speaking, was not a part of the covenant of the works. The covenant of works was um, be fruitful and multiply, uh, subdue the garden and fill the earth. Uh, and don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the covenant of works. Do these three things. Don't don't do these things. Like that that was it. That doesn't mean that the other things weren't sinful or in some sense. We we can't really I can't really explain that theology to be honest with you. Like I'm still working through it in my mind. But that doesn't mean that the the moral law is not underlying the covenant of works and doesn't extend to us extend to us the covenant of works in some sense too. And so right. I think I think we have to get this because if we don't get it, we just lose any semblance of understanding what what the obedience of Christ even means. Yes. Right? What is what is the obedience of Christ if it's not obedience to, to God's moral law? It is obedience to the whole the whole Old Testament law, including the ceremonial and civil laws. Yes. But but the the moral law as the fundamental basis for all of those other laws. Uh, the the only non-positive law, the only thing that's woven into the fabric of reality, that in itself is um, is problematic if we lose sight of the covenant of works. It just it just kind of falls apart really quickly. Yeah, you're right on. I mean, yeah, and so as we could, we could talk for like hours on end, so we should probably bring this plane down in our usual metaphor. Try to land this, but not like a crash landing. Like let's keep the wheels on this thing this time. So like. One of the things that I think could blow our minds is like, uh, you know, and I'd argue that this covenant, the covenant of works certainly was enforced from the creation of Adam to the time of his transgression. But, and you'll find this, I think again, like imputed, impounded, ooh, probably not imputed. Impounded is a better word. Like into the way in which you kind of have this evangelical presentation of the gospel. You could make the argument that the covenant of works is really still active for anyone who rejects God's offer of redemption in Christ. That when we speak about hell, the fire of hell, the, the retribution, the judgment that is due, the natural man, that really what we're drawing back to, hearkening to, is this covenant of works again. That everyone is, in fact, underneath it. It's just that whether or not you have been covered, that righteousness has been imputed to you through Jesus Christ by way of his vicarious fulfillment of that law, which again is still a real, genuine, and legally binding entity. So this is like everywhere. I actually, again, I actually think we can't run from this. It's just better to like, just, just stop and lean yeah. into it. it. It's part of your theology where they realize it. it's part. Well, let's say it this way. It's part of like good gospel presentation, good gospel theology. It's there. I think you actually probably have to do more theological gymnastics to get around this, to find some surrogate to explain the grace of God and the sacrifice of Christ, like vicariously, that brings about some kind of restoration and fulfillment between mankind and the creator, apart from the covenant of works. Yeah, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. Well, rather than saying. launch into another uh, another five-minute tirade of saying exactly the same thing in probably only slightly different ways, uh, I think that's a good place as any to wrap it up. So um, don't forget... Uh, check out the Lagos uh, Fundamentals Package. It's a super good deal. We really want you to check it out because it's a really great resource at a super good price. 
Um, and make sure you go to the website and click on that Join the Brotherhood link. There's a number of ways uh, that you can uh, support the show. Uh, you can ignore anything that has to do with social media because we don't do that anymore. Uh, but you could join the Telegram channel by going to t.me slash Reform Brotherhood. We have some great conversations in there. Yeah, I, I was watching the chat. I was trying to not to get distracted, although I was not being successful. <laughs> I was uh, looking at it too. <laughs> there's a pretty amazing conversation that I am actually was actually actively participating in during the recording here. Uh, a pretty awesome conversation about the nature of the Sabbath, right? Right, what we're talking about, the nature of the Sabbath and how that's woven into the moral law, whether that's something that we can observe naturally I was arguing we can because of the way that the orbit of the sun is and the division of the days. Some others are saying, no, it's not. It's entirely positive law that's given to us by God. So it, there's lots of interesting conversations. Today, uh, yesterday was Mother's Day, so there was like a whole thread going on about baby pictures and stuff like that. Uh, but it's really a lot of fun. I think you should check it out. Yes, everybody should definitely do that. It's a great way and kind of a new and experimental way to connect with like-minded brothers and sisters and the conversations are pretty diverse. We'll yes. go from everything from, I appreciated that somebody brought up what is the like best Bluetooth, like earbuds. Yeah, <laughs> I saw that too. Like, <laughs> I love that conversation, which was very useful to me. It was like side by side with all these other wonderful theological conversations. So let's get on it, brothers and sisters. Join in the group and chat it up. Yes. Well, Jesse, I think that's a good place to stop. And uh, until I next so. time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. What if I'm part-